Before we start on this morning's readings, I was wondering if there are any questions left over from yesterday's. Okay, why we do it? Okay. Um, if your concentration is focused on one point and any, any little disturbance comes in, you've lost your concentration. Whereas if you have a large full body awareness, things can come in, but you've got the framework that allows it to come in and go out and, use to, and the framework stays steady. It's one reason. Second reason is um, you develop this kind of all-around awareness. Things that come into the mind can come in from different directions. It's almost like different thoughts are embedded in different parts of your body. And when they come up, you can see them when they come. If your awareness is focused on one point, all kinds of stuff can be going on in the background and you're going to miss it. So this is the kind of concentration. The Buddha recommends it again and again. Full body awareness, we'll be seeing this in some of the passages later on. But those are two of the reasons. Yes? Yeah, it depends on how well established you are in the concentration. If you say, I need, I need more time to concentrate, you just let, the, let whatever thought, even if it's a thought about Dharma or whatever, you just let it go. That should be your first kind of knee-jerk reaction. Now, after a while, you'll find that this is the ideal state for contemplating these things, but you want to make sure that your foundation is solid. Okay, the brief form of the maps. Okay, the first map had to do with where you're starting as you approach the practice, and it starts, you know, from, he gives the, the Buddha gives the basic lineup for how things give rise to stress, but then from stress, we move to conviction, and then, and then from conviction, you move on to the rest of the path. So it starts about this, this awareness of, I've got this problem of suffering in my mind, the stress and suffering, and something needs to be done about it. And ideally, as I said, the normal reaction is either bewilderment or a search. And so the Buddha is offering, here, oh, here's a good person to search for and here's a good explanation for it so that you can get started on putting an end to it. That was the first map. Let's look at the second, I forgot what the second map was. Oh, the graduated discourse. This would give you an idea of what a few, um, what we missed, what's missing in that first map is the leap from stress and suffering to conviction. And the Buddha says basically, okay, you, you want to find somebody you can trust, because you've been searching. So you find somebody that you trust. And then what would that person teach you? A basic outline. Before explaining how suffering is caused, this starts with teachings on generosity, teachings on virtue, heaven, drawbacks of sensuality, renunciation, and then you'd be ready for the Four Noble Truths. The third map goes a little bit into how the practice follows on after finding, finding someone of, that you really trust. You meet, with some, you meet a person of integrity, okay, then you get to hear the Dharma from that person. From that comes conviction, and then following on the conviction, this is another set of ways in which you can look at the path of practice. You develop appropriate attention, mindfulness, restraint of the senses, virtue. Um, develop establishing mindfulness and then developing the factors for awakening. So essentially the, the main outline is you have the problem of stress, you meet somebody that you trust, and then you learn from them how to practice the Dharma. And there's different, different maps going into different more detail on some aspects of this kind of general map than others. So that, that sort of sets out the main outline. Now today we're going to be going on looking at another way in which what do you do when you listen to the Dharma from going listening to practicing? What are the steps that you follow? 
and then they'll be followed by two explanations of different explanations of the path. One which emphasizes starting with breath mindfulness and then going through there through concentration. And then another one is, the other one emphasizes starting with virtue, dealing with the hindrances, mastering the jhanas, and then from jhanas you gain insight. So it's kind of the general map. This is how all the maps kind of fit together. Okay, first I'd want to make sure he wanted to listen. <laughs> and then say, wait a minute, when you get angry like this, you're going to be destroying a lot of things that are dear to you, that are important to you. So you, you've got to see the need to get the anger under control. You've got to see it that it's to your advantage to get the anger under control. So one, you know, look at the damage you're causing. And two, secondly, okay, if there's somebody that really doesn't like you, they're going to be pleased to see you doing something stupid like this. Do you want to give them the satisfaction? For some, for some people, that, that line of thought works, you know. And then, then you have to give them an alternative. It's okay, if you really want to see something changed, is anger the most effective way of doing it? Because a lot of people think well, nothing gets done in the world unless you, you know, go break a few bases. And you say, no, I think it would be more, more useful if you could learn how to you know, just breathe calmly through the anger and then think about what would be the most effective thing to do. I had a student one time who was, whose son was hyperactive, um, autistic, bad combination. And as he became a teenager, he became you know, very violent. And she kept telling him, you know, you can't be angry, you can't be angry. I said, no, no, you stop it. Say, when you're angry, stop for a second, breathe deeply, and then think about what would be the most effective thing to do, rather than just giving in to the anger right away. That's how it started. In the beginning, you use your imagination, but after a while, you begin to realize that by holding that image in mind, it actually happens. You're, you're, you're using the process of fabrication to create a good, comfortable place to stay in the body. I don't trust deities. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Well, it's it's you know it's the breath the breath energy in the body is not imaginary. It's just you have to make room for it in your imagination for it to flow flow well. Yeah, it actually happens. Yeah, yeah we're talking about the body as you feel it from within. And part of the way you feel your body is the flow of energy. And the question is, is this flow of energy conducive to getting the mind to settle down, or is it getting in the way? And you try to think of it, and it's very responsive to your mind in many ways. I mean, there's some areas where it will not be responsive, but a lot of times it can be, and you're trying to take advantage of that. So it's not purely imaginary. And besides with deities, you don't want deities coming in. You don't know who they are. They don't, they don't come with any identification. <laughs> okay, passage number eight. This is basically a condensed version of passage seven. Remember that passage seven had included appropriate attention. And so this one talks about finding people of integrity, listening to the true Dharma from them, and then applying appropriate attention. Then from appropriate attention, they say you practice in accordance with the Dharma. This means two things. One, whatever the Dharma says, you practice it. And two, you're practicing for the sake of disenchantment and dispassion. There was a time when a group of monks were going to a far part of India, and they 
came to say goodbye to the Buddha, and he said, have you said goodbye to Sariputta yet? And he said, well, no, we haven't, but go say goodbye to Sariputta. And so he, so they go to see him, and he says, you know, you're going to this place where no one knows anything about the Buddha's teachings. <clears throat> if they ask you, what does your teacher teach, how are you going to respond? They say, we would come a long way to hear what you have to say on this. And so the very thing, the first thing he says is, our teacher teaches dispassion. And he says, these are intelligent people, they will then ask, dispassion for what? Now that shows a difference between intelligent people in India back in those days and people nowadays. They'd actually be interested in hearing the, hearing the answer to that question. <laughs> Most people say, dispassion? Who wants dispassion? But he says, okay, dispassion for what? Then it goes, you know, dispassion for the five aggregates. Okay, why, what advantage do you, does your teacher see in having dispassion? And what drawbacks does he see in not having, not having dispassion? And he basically says, when the five aggregates change, if you have passion for them, then you're going to be upset by the change. But if you, if, you have, if you have dispassion, then no matter what happens to the aggregates, you're going to be okay. And then he goes on to say, by developing this attitude, it leads to true happiness. Now, the quality of dispassion is, is treated very highly. The Buddha said, of all the dharmas there are, dispassion is the highest, because it's right on the threshold of nirvana. So that's what all this pr practice is aimed for. Because as I said, we're fabricating in ways that cause suffering and stress. And if we can learn how to develop some dispassion for this food that we've been creating through our fabrication, then we can stop the process. We just stop the process and that's the end of suffering. So this is why we're practicing. So that covers passage 8 and passage 9. Passage 10 goes into more, a little bit more on how you recognize a person of integrity and how you listen to the Dharma. So this is focusing in on the first couple steps in the third map we had, which was Passage 7. Okay, first you find a monk, and you go to him and you observe him. In other words, you don't commit yourself right away. You say, let's watch this guy for a while. And so for the first question you ask is, does this person have any greed, aversion, or delusion of the sort that would lead him to say he knows something that he doesn't know, or that he sees something that he doesn't see? Or that would urge, urge another person to act in a way that was, that was for that person's long-term harm and pain. And this gets back to that old issue I told you about yesterday, which is when the Buddha said, the worst way to harm somebody is to get them to do something unskillful. So would this person ever try to do, have any reason for getting you to do something unskillful, to harm yourself? Um, there was a, there's a Buddhist sect in, in Thailand right now. I call them the Am way of Thai Buddhism. And they keep promising, okay, if you give X amount of money, you're going to be guaranteed to be a millionaire in all your future lifetimes, or this kind of thing. And they've actually got people, you know, borrowing money so they can make merit. And that's, that's not for their long-term welfare. That kind of, that kind of, that kind of setup is, is harming people. But any teacher that would say, you know, say, you know, it's okay to kill, it's okay to steal, to cheat, whatever, um, that person would be harming you. So you look at the teacher and they say, this person doesn't have any of that greed, aversion, or delusion that would cause him either to claim things, claim knowledge of things he doesn't know, or that would get him, make him want to 
get someone to do something that would actually be harmful to that person, then, okay, you say, okay, this person looks trustworthy. Now, the Buddha said in another part passage that if you're going to recognize a person of integrity, you have to have some integrity yourself. You have to have, be able to sort of sense it because you know what integrity is like. You've been around people that you, that you trust. I was, all those years I was living with the John Fuang, I got used to being a person with a person like a John Fuang, and then after he died, they appointed another monk as acting abbot of the monastery. And I was suddenly struck by, oh my gosh, this monk has a lot of greed. And, you know, I'd lived with somebody who didn't have that, and all of a sudden it was, was somebody who did have it, and it, it really was, was jarring. And so the best way to recognize integrity in somebody else is to develop it in yourself first. And then you can recognize, well, this person has something I want to stay away from. But if you don't see any signs of lack of integrity, then it says then that's when you grow close to the person. In other words, you hang around. As you hang around, then he says, then you try to listen carefully to what the person says. And that way you get to hear the Dharma. Now, once you've heard the Dharma, the Buddha says that's not enough. You have to, one, try to remember it. Of course, this was back in those days when they didn't have tape recordings, so you can go back and listen again. And people apparently had very well-developed memories. And the Buddha would give a talk, and he'd give it you know, knowing that these people are going to try to remember the talk, and so he would organize it. He said, I'm, I'm going to talk on this topic, and then he talks on that topic, and then he gives a review of what he talked, up, talked about. And there's a lot of repetition, which is helpful. It can get kind of, you know, if you're listening for entertainment, it's not much entertainment there, but if you're listening, it's like, I'm trying to memorize this, okay, it's very helpful for memorizing. So you try to remember it. After you remember it, then you try to penetrate the meaning. In other words, what, does, what do these words say? What do they mean? And this is where the Buddha says, he, in, in his way of teaching, he encourages cross-questioning. In other words, you go back to the teacher and say, you said X the other day, what did you mean by that? Or, when the, or if you, somebody else says, when the Buddha says, you know, a, uses a particular word, what does that word mean? Or what does this teaching mean? You're, at, you're invited to question, to clarify it. The Buddha compares this, his way of teaching with what, what he says, teaching in bombast. And bombast is what the words are beautiful, and it's nice, but they're never encouraged to you know, pin down the precise meanings of those terms. You, know, you talk about innate goodness, you say, well, that sounds nice. Let's look at this innate goodness for a bit. And as you start taking it apart, you know, there's, there's not much there. And so you're not encouraged to ask. Okay, you try to get to the meaning, and then you try to see to what extent does this fit in with the other dharma that I've learned. How does it make sense? And when you've got the meaning, penetrated the meaning, and the, what they call agreement through pondering, in other words, this fits with that, that fits with this, okay, that's when you get the desire to practice. This is something I want to do. And then that's when from the desire comes what he calls willingness. Now the willingness here is when you realize, okay, this is going to go against some of my desires, some of my habits. I will willingly submit to this for the time being to see how it works. Like you said the other day, come and see. Give it a try. And then it says you contemplate. Now the contemplation here is the word they use also means to weigh. In other words, you're comparing your own behavior vis-a-vis -vis the Dharma and saying, where am I still lacking? What needs to be brought into line with the Dharma? Where do I need to make changes in myself? 
And finally, based on that, that's when you put in your effort. So it's not simply listening to the Dharma and saying, hmm, that sounds good. You find a person that you've observed closely enough that say, this person is someone I can trust. You listen to their Dharma carefully, even try to remember it. Then you try to get to the meaning of things that are not clear. You try to see the extent to it. How does this fit in with everything else I've learned about the Dharma? If it doesn't fit in, what's the problem? Is the problem with me or is the problem with the teaching? You try to work that out. And again, this is an area where the Buddha recommends cross-questioning, asking questions to get to the meeting. Then you get the desire to practice. There's a willingness to put aside your personal preferences for the sake of trying on the teachings. And then you contemplate, where, am I t where does my behavior not fit in with the Dharma? Where am I still lacking? What do I need to do in order to bring it up, up, to, up to the standard? And that's when you actually then exert yourself. Any questions on those steps? Yes? Okay. Um, come down to what Meta? <laughs> Observe me to see if I'm... <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, good, it's, good, it's, good, it's good to get, a, get away every now and then from where you are so you can say, okay, this is something that's important enough to me. I'll devote my vacation time to find, trying to find a good teacher. I was I was told that I, I was I was told I could put coffee to sleep. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it, I mean it is difficult. We have, you know, our, our society pulls us around all these places. You live here and then you live there, and you know, it's just hard to settle down in one place and have time enough with the teacher. But it is. It is good every now and then to take the time off to say, I'm going to try to go to a place where I can be closer to a teacher and actually check it out. This, these people who sound good online, what are they like in person? And, and in some cases, you know, there was the case of a John Mun, uh, excuse me, a John Cha. He was with a John Mun for only three days, but that changed his life. Just saying, okay, this is, oh, this is what a real monk is like. And that was enough to sort of give him guidance. It's back in the Buddhist time. It was the idea was that you did both. And I think John Cha was realizing when Westerners come, they're just full of ideas, all kinds of ideas. And he said, just learn how to put that aside. Um, and there comes a point though when you, you have to start picking it up again. Now with the John Fung, it wasn't quite that way. He said, okay, read a John Lee. And so I read a lot of a John Lee. But aside from that, I wasn't doing much reading for a couple of years myself. Because one of the big problems you have in Thailand is that the, the Thai translations of the canon are really, really bad. And it's basically translation by dictionary. And so you read these passages and they don't make any sense, even for a native speaker of Thai. So that's one of the reasons why the forest tradition was so anti-scholarly in general. But you did have people like a John, a John, like a John Lee. He read quite a lot after he's had his time with the John Mun. The idea being that okay, if you have a good, solid foundation in your practice, then you can look at a text and you say, okay, which parts are actually meaningful and which ones are not. But it's good to have time with the teacher and time with yourself, getting your mind, getting your mind under control. 
Okay, it's when, when you meet up with the deathless, it's going to be in the same place where you're feeling your body right now. The, the same place where you have this awareness right now, that's where the, the, the experience of the deathless will happen. It's an inner, immediate experience. It's not like we're going to go up to the moon or someplace and find... It's not out there, it's in here. So it's a direct experience. Deathless is, but then the question of realizing it with your body, how do you, you know, that's what she, that's what she was getting at. No, renunciation, sangwega, dispassion, these are all three very different things. Sangwega is the sense that life is meaningless, as it's normally lived. And the, the word literally means terror, a sense of, my gosh, here I am trapped in this process that doesn't offer any, any, any true, true satisfaction or true happiness. There's got to be a way out. Renunciation is when you said, okay, I've been looking for my happiness in sensual fantasies. This is not getting me anywhere. i just got to learn how to find another source of happiness. Whereas dispassion is when you finally get to the point where you realize, okay, what is driving all these processes? It's my own hunger to feed off of the things that I create. And so you find something that's better than that, and you say, I don't need to do this anymore. And then you drop it. It's, it's the, actually the closest, the, the final step before nirvana. Yeah. Question. I think it's good to have at least one person that you really, really, really trust, so that can give you kind of a, an anchor. And I mean, if you have more people than that, that's fine. But the quality, when you find somebody who's really exceptional, I mean, like going over to Thailand, I found that John Foyne was really exceptional. And so, okay, this is the kind of person I could, you know, learn from a lot. And so I was willing to give myself to him. And then having lived with him, I said that became a, became a kind of touchstone. From then I could recognize other people who had integrity and those who didn't. I mean, after he died, I ended up staying with a John Sawat, who was another person that had that kind of feel that he was had a lot of integrity. And then when you know somebody like that, then you can say, okay, I'm in a group like this, and you know, we all have our defilements, and we have our good spots and our bad spots, and I'll begin to recognize the good spots and the other people, because you have a model. So even though you're not there with the teacher all the time, you have that sense in your of your own experience. I've seen, I've met somebody who has a lot of integrity. And as for the abuses, Stephen had an unfortunate experience of having some pretty bad teachers. And so that this the, the, the setup where everything is focused on the teacher, especially in Tibet, that it was, really is rife for abuse. Among the forest tradition, it, it's the realization is: okay, this teacher is not working for me. I've got to find another teacher. There's no problem. There's kind of a more fluidity about that. And you're not expecting the awakening from the teacher. There's no transmission. And usually where there's transmission, other things get transmitted as well. But <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's all, everything is thrown back on you. And that, that's the kind of system I find, I feel more comfortable with. But it is good to have, you know, have, have had some direct contact with somebody that you face. Oh, this person really is, has a lot of integrity. Now I know what a person of integrity is like. I mean, I went to Thailand thinking I'd pick up a little meditation techniques and come back to the States. I met a John Fuang, and he said, my gosh, this is the first really happy person I've ever found in my life. And I came back to the States thinking I was going to go on and get a graduate degree and whatnot. And I looked at all the professors around me. I said, nobody's happy here. <laughs> I got to go back. <laughs> so it's good to have that, you know, one person to. Well, John Fuang gave me a good example because um, he was seeing as here I was a Westerner coming, and there, you know, I had a lot of my own ideas about how things should be done. And he basically said, "You're a Westerner. You don't, you know, a foreigner here. Your opinions are not welcome." <laughs> 
And then I said, okay, I guess I've got to do whatever he's told. I'm told. And then I would do something. He said, don't you use your, ever use your own head? Come on, think, you know. <laughs> so I said, okay. And then he realized he had me over a barrel. And so he told me a story one time. They were building an ordination hall at Matasokarama, John Lee's monastery. And as they were laying the foundation, the assumption was that the Buddha image inside would be facing east, which is what they do in Thailand. And so they put this large foundation stone under where the Buddha image was going to be, and they put all kinds of relics and passages of Dharma and Buddha images and other things inside that, sealed it up, and then built the building. And then at some point in the construction, John Lee changed his mind. He said, no, the Buddha image is going to go over here facing west. And you know, people have been talking about, what did, what did he mean by a Buddha image facing west? And one of, the, one of the assumptions is, well, he said he knew the Buddhism was going to go west, and so he wanted to symbolize that. That, that, by the way, was the ordination hall in which I was ordained. At any rate, when the ordination hall was done, someone realized, okay, we have all this box full of all these relics and other things, not under the Buddha image, but under a part of the hall where people are going to be stepping over it, which in Thailand you don't do. And so but someone pointed that out to a John Lee, and a John Fung happened to be sitting next to him. And so he turned to a John Fung and he said, okay, tomorrow I'll get the monks down there to move that. Now the first thought that went through John Fung's mind is, there's no way you're going to be able to move that. It's concrete set in the ground, you know. And it's, but he knew if he said, well, it can't be done, then a John Lee said, well, I'll find somebody else who can, you know. So the next morning, a John Fung got all the able-bodied monks and novices in the temple under the ordination hall, and they had ropes and crowbars and everything, and they tried all day to budge that thing, and it wouldn't move. And so that evening, a John Fung came up, and he said, how about if we make a new box under the, where the Buddha image is now, open up the old one, take all the stuff out of that one and put it in the new one. And John Lee said, okay. And so then John Fung said, that's how you show respect for your teacher. In other words, give, give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. If it doesn't work, you try to come up with some analysis of why it's not working and then you test it against your teacher. Otherwise, you don't just come running and say, it's not working, tell me what to do now. No, you, get, you show that you're actually putting in some effort. So it's a combination of, okay, I'll try it. If it's not working, figure out why it's not working, and then check it with him or her. I mean, actually, when he was still on his way for, path for awakening, he sought out two teachers, was not satisfied with what they taught, then he went on his own. And then for the rest of his life, mostly it was people coming to see him. It was very rare that he would actually go out and argue with somebody else. But there were two issues in which he would, and they all had to do with karma. The first one, if people taught that their, your actions had no impact on your future or on, on your happiness at all, present or future, that was either because, because of determinism or because they taught that the world was, everything was chaotic, or that there was some creator God who created everything, he would go and he'd argue with them. As he's saying, it's what you're teaching is basically denying the efficacy of your actions. And if you're doing that, then there's really no basis for it. Why are you teaching anyhow? Because you know? then there's no basis for deciding what should or shouldn't be done, which is the teacher's first re you know, responsibility to students, is to give, a, give them a basis for deciding what kind of behavior is skillful, what kind of behavior is not. Those are the only issues where he would actually take issue, you would actually go out and argue. Oh, no. 
He just had those two when he was on his way and then he was not satisfied with them. That's why he's a Buddha. Yeah, he, he found the Dharma on his own. Okay, passage number passage number 11. Okay, here's, here we're getting started on the issue of how you develop mindfulness. And the first one is, you, first you start out with the basis of mindfulness, which is well-purified virtue and views made straight. I was mentioning earlier that the Buddha's teaching on how you would harm someone else is to, one, convince them that they, that they're, they don't have to observe by the, hold by the precepts, and also teach them wrong view. So you have to have these things are your valuables. <clears throat> the basis for skillful mental qualities is well-purified virtue and your views made straight. In other words, you, it is belief in the power of action, the principle of rebirth. Then dependent on that, then you develop the four establishings of mindfulness. And then through developing the four establishings of mindfulness, then you will reach an, um, freedom from Mara, as they say. You go beyond Mara's realm. So in passage 12, however, before you start developing the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha is teaching here again, he's teaching Rahula, goes to what are some contemplations that are good to have in mind as you're beginning to practice mindfulness? And this comes from a much longer passage in the canon. There was one passage that was part of this was so long, I just couldn't include it. The Buddha actually starts out by contemplating, having Rahula contemplate the four elements, i.e., the elements that make up your elementary experience of having a body. Earth, water, wind, fire, which would be solidity, coolness, warmth, energy. That's how we experience the body. That's how it appears to us within. And in each case, he had to contemplate how these things are not self. It starts off with not self. This body is not, not yourself. That's the first contemplation he has. And then from that, then he goes through the series of contemplations that are listed in passage 12. So let's go down these. Okay. First, develop meditation in tune with earth. When you develop meditation in tune with earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean or unclean on the earth, feces, urines, saliva, pus, or blood. It's interesting, he lists the unclean things, but not the clean things. The earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In the same way, when you are developing meditation in tune with earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Now, a lot of what passes for vipassana is basically this. Learn how to be non-reactive as a basis for how you're going to further on start making observations about your mind, about what's going on in body and mind. So learn how to just say, I'm going to be able to wait and just watch, not get upset when things come up I don't like, and not get really pleased when things happen that I do like. Learn how to watch them more objectively. So he's not saying, just be like a clod of dirt, you'll be okay. He's basically, make yourself solid, and then you're going to do your experiments. Because when we get down into the teachings on breath and mindfulness, you find that it is actually very proactive with the purpose of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. You need a mind that is ready in a position where it can judge objectively. Okay, I've watched this long enough and patiently enough, so I have an idea of what connects to what, what's skillful, what's not skillful. That's, this is the first prerequisite for being an observant person. He makes a similar comment with water, fire, and wind. In other words, fire, breathe, fire burns 
agreeable and disagreeable things. Wind blows, so water washes them, wind blows them around. They don't get upset. And then there's the contemplation, make your mind like space. Here it says, just as space is not established anywhere in the same way we are developing meditation into a space, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not stay in charge of your mind. In other words, you don't f stay focused on the impressions. There's another use of this analogy elsewhere in the canon, which is also, I think, very helpful. It says, when your mind is like space, or think of it being like space, people can try to write things in space, but nothing is left behind. This particularly is useful for, for dealing with, as the Buddha says, unpleasant words. You say, okay, they've just written in space, I'm not going to keep it and remember it. Why is it we remember so well the nasty things people say to us? You know? The Buddha says, just let it disappear. Don't hold on to it. So those are the first element meditations, you may call them. When agreeable and disagreeable things come, think of my mind can be like earth, it can be like wind, water, fire, space. Don't, these things don't stay established in my mind. Any questions on those meditations? Well, it's, it, at, the very, at the very least, have some, at least see it as a good thing to be non-reactive. And as I was saying the other day, or yesterday, I saying, our culture is really good at teaching everybody to be reactive very quickly. And so for us, it, it takes a real act of the will to be non-reactive. My feeling is back in the Buddhist time, people were taught to be non-reactive pretty early on, and to see the advantage of that. And so he's here reminding Rahul, okay, this is a good quality to have. Keep this in mind. Again, this is why I think you know John Cha was, and all the Chaya Johns, when they got a Western student, said, okay, let's learn a little bit about patience and equanimity here. And basically, go back and complete your, the education you should have gotten when you were five years old. And so this is why you, this is why you have psychiatric patients. They're missing something in their education here. Well, you look at, I would say before you start meditation, you don't have everything straightened out, but Make sure that you're working on this as you're meditating. I mean, you look at the Eightfold Path, it starts out with right views and moves into virtue before it starts talking about concentration. But you'll find that your virtue and your, and your views get better as you develop your concentration. So the, the factors have a reciprocal relationship. Right. This is. This is not contemplation of the body per se, this is contemplation of how I can make my mind more like one of these elements. They have, I mean, the passage that came right before that, the Buddha says, you know, look at your body, see which parts are solid, and realize, okay, the, the, the solid parts in here are made out of the very same elements that, you know, the wall over there and the ceiling and the, and that helps to depersonalize your attachment to the body. This is just something, this is just a physical phenomenon. And it's going to change. Why should I hold on to it? Why should I identify with it? Why do I say, this is me? Well, just remind yourself that these atoms in your body are composed mainly of space. And so there's no real clear dividing line. It's just like even within our body, you know, they talk about all the germs in our body. And I think at least about, about half of the mass is not you. you know? <laughs> 
It's all the germs, and some of them are cooperative, and some of them are not. You know? Well, just think, God, there is no boundary around my mind. The edge of this body is not a boundary for me. And see what that does. Well, this, there's a lot of um, musical imagery in the canon, and I think we miss some of it because you know, we don't know all the vocabulary that they use for music, but we do know some of them, and this, this particular term, being in tune with, is, is one of them. And it's just kind of, I found this useful on, on several, several levels. One is when you have a pain in your body, think, okay, the pain is one frequency, my experience of the body is a different frequency. I'm going to tune into the, the frequency of the body and not tune into the frequency of the pain. I find that helpful. I mean, they're, they're inhabited the same space. It's just like the radio waves here in the room. You know, we've got Vancouver and Victoria and Seattle and Tacoma and Bellingham has, has its own radio station, right? Stations? Stations? Okay. Okay, we've all these, all these different frequencies going through. And they're all occupying the same space, and it depends if your radio can pick out which frequency you want, then you're not getting the, the, the disturbance from the other frequencies. Just a second. And the other issue is um, when you are having strong experiences of rapture, and they're getting too much and unpleasant, think around yourself, okay, there is a more subtle energy in my body, a different frequency, tune into that. Those are the two main areas where I find that, that thinking useful all the bad energies around you. Mm -hmm. And just have that confidence, okay, there's something good in here, something better in here, I'll tune into that. Mm -hmm. And it helps you tune out some of the other stuff. Now what you're trying to do first is, you know, as I said earlier, you find a comfortable part in the body, focus on that, and then think of the energy from that part going through the pain. And you'll find that sometimes some of the shell or the tightness around the pain will begin to dissolve. And in some cases, that will dissolve the pain. Other cases, the pain will still be there. There's no way you're going to get it out, no matter how nicely you breathe. And that's when you say, okay, I want to be here with it, but I want to see that, okay, my body is one frequency, the pain is another frequency. My awareness is something else, actually. You want to see them kind of separate out. So that you can be there with the pain, but it doesn't impress you. In the same way that they could be broadcasting heavy metal rock on one station here, but you're tuned in to another station, you're not going to be you know, bothered by that broadcast of heavy metal rock because you're not picking it up. If that helps, I wouldn't try, I wouldn't make the same frequency as the body, but you might want to make it a different frequency. The first, well, the first thing, the first thing I would do, I'd ask the question: Is the pain solid? One. And then you say, well, no, it comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes. It's these moments of pain following right across, right on top of each other. When they come, are they actually coming at me, or can I hold in mind the perception that they're going away? This is when you start playing with perception, which is one of those, the metal fabrication. And if you can see the pain is actually going away, going away, going away, then you don't feel like it's coming at you, and you're, it's a lot easier to be with it. Then you begin to see that the, the problem with the pain is the perception you have around it. So here it's not so much dealing with frequencies, it's changing your perception. To see that it's not, you know, it doesn't have an intention to hurt you, it doesn't have a specific shape, it doesn't have a specific location in your body. Because part of our, our warning signal is that where is that pain? You try to focus it and pin it down. And the more you do that, the more it's actually going to be coming back at you. I find it better to, to just work with the perceptions. 
just ask you, which, which one of my perceptions is actually causing this physical pain to pain my mind? Now John Lee has a great image. He says that for most of us, it's like we're plowing a field and we've got a, in the case we had a water buffalo, and you have a bag tied to the water buffalo's leg, and as the dirt comes off the plow, you gather up the dirt. And of course, you're going to you know, stumble over the bag and not, never get finished, because we're thinking the pain has been here all this long, and it's going to be, continue to be here this long. And I've got to remember exactly where this pain is, because if I forget, it may spread. Um, and don't gather it up, basically. Let the pain come and go, 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 go as it's going. That's the first step. And then the second step is we've got to go back to where the pain is and get to, because we're, we're basically trying to comprehend it. And so the first thing is, well, can, can I help relieve some of the pain by the fact that I've got this good energy here? And then if that, whatever's left, then you've got to deal with directly with that. Okay, what is this sensation of pain that's driving me so crazy? That's the second step. Okay. And then the third step, the, the, some, some pain is still going to be there, no matter how much compassion you have for it. You say, nice pain, lovely pain. <laughs> and it's still <laughs> Well, the first step is, what perceptions am I applying to this pain that make it pain my mind? And that's when you start staking apart it. Well, how do I actually fabricate my perceptions and things around that pain? Let's change those fabrications. You've already worked with the breath, now the next question is, how do you work with perceptions? First step is, Go away from the pain. Find another spot. Yeah. Second step is spread good energy from the first step, from the first part. And the third step is now we've got to analyze the whole process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Use of the elements here, the way I'm understanding it now, is making the same point with all the Right. It's just equity. Non-reactivity, yeah. And it's you know, I personally find the, the earth one the most effective because earth is solid, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because I'm Capricorn, I don't know. <laughs> okay, and then from the, the element meditation, he goes on to the Brahma Viharas. Develop the meditation of goodwill. Now, he doesn't explain it here. In other places, it's basically this whole idea of you know starting with yourself and then going to people who are close to you and so on, that actually comes later in the canon. It was one of the last books that was added in the canon, goes into that kind of meditation. In the earlier parts of the canon, the Buddha simply says, spread goodwill in all directions. And here it's good to understand goodwill in, in the context, and you know, we've been talking about karma all along. What does it mean in the idea, in the context of the teaching on karma? What does goodwill mean? And so first you have to look at it, what does it mean that you are wishing happiness for others? And as I said earlier, wishing that they would understand the causes for true happiness and be able to act on them. That's the nature of your wish for them. Now the question is your motivation, why are you doing this? And the Buddha never says you do this because we are all one, or that we all have Buddha nature, or that we're all innately good. We're doing this because we know that if there's somebody out there that we have ill will for, then when, if we start acting with that person, we're going to start doing really unskillful things. So it's basically for us. We're not asking, do they deserve our goodwill or not? It's basically, we need to have that goodwill for them, for our purposes, to sort of guarantee that we're not going to do unskillful things around the people that we really don't like. 
then there comes in the question under karma. Well, if you know, if someone is really suffering, say when we get to compassion, um, does karma say that they just continue to have to suffer, and that's not the case? The Buddha's image for karma is. Let's back up a bit. Um, for most of us, we have that idea that if you're teaching in karma, that what you see of a person right now is kind of the running balance in their karma account. You know, the, 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 the summation of all their good and bad actions yield what they are right now. And that's not the case. Different actions have been sprouting at different rates in a different period. So you may have some karma in your past that is not sprouting or has not sprouted yet. It's just waiting. And there's stuff that's showing itself, and then there's stuff that has already sprouted and ended. So you've got this karma field with lots of different plants in it, or lots of different potential plants. And so what you're hoping is that this person has the potential in their karma field for something good to come up. And maybe you're the good, so maybe you can do something for them. So try to think in those terms. So the karma never talks about people deserving to suffer. The Buddha never said, okay, I will teach you how to put an end to suffering only if, you, if your suffering is undeserved. The concept of deserving or not deserving never comes up. He says, okay, no matter what you've done in the past, here is how you can learn not to suffer from what you've done in the past or what you're doing now. And then finally, the question of karma also relates to what is it you're doing when you spread goodwill? As the Buddha says, this is a determination. Yeah, so you make up your mind, okay, I'm going to have goodwill for everyone. And then it's something you have to keep in mind. It's a, it's a form of mindfulness. So it's not, you're, you're not tapping into your innate good nature to express, or your innate goodwill. Basically you realize, I'm going to have goodwill for some beings, but not for everybody. And now I'm going to try to make it universal, and that requires an act of will. And once you've made that act of will, then you have to remember it. So it's a kind of mindfulness. Now in practical terms, these four Brahmaparas are really useful. This is one of the reasons why we start every meditation with goodwill. You sit down, meditate. Things are going to come up in the course of your meditation about someone who has harmed you or someone you have harmed. Something happened in the dur during the day. You have to say, look, goodwill for everybody. I don't need to get back into that old narrative of you know who did what to whom and why they shouldn't have done that, that kind of thing. You see the face of somebody in meditation, goodwill. Somebody else, okay, goodwill. For, you want to make that kind of a knee-jerk reaction as you're getting your mind to settle down. The same goes for compassion, which is basically when you see someone is suffering, you have to have compassion for them. Empathetic joy is when you see someone enjoying the results of their good actions, or who are in the, co in, the, in the course of doing good actions. You feel joy for them. You don't resent them. You're not jealous. And if you see people seem to be happy and powerful and whatnot, and they don't seem to deserve it, say, well, can they, maybe they remember the good that they did in the past that led them to have this goodness now, so they can start doing some more of that good. I don't want to name names. <laughs> <laughs> And then finally, equanimity. Okay, there's some things you just cannot control, cannot change. You've got to learn how to accept it so you can focus on things you can change. So these, will, these four contemplations are here so that if ill will comes up in the course of your, your meditation, you can abandon it. If thoughts of cruelty, I'd really like to see this person suffer, that goes. 
you can abandon it. Resentment and jealousy, you can abandon it. Irritation, you can abandon it. That allows you to get the mind to settle down. So this is another set of meditations that's good to have in your arsenal as you're getting ready to do mindfulness. You see, the Buddha never had people just sit down and do mindfulness. He said, first, develop these different kinds of ways of thinking so that when the time comes to settle down, you'll have the weapons you need in order to deal with whatever's going to come up. Any questions on the Brahma Viharas? Yes? Traditionally, they would say she probably drank at some point, if not this lifetime, maybe a previous lifetime. And so in cases like that, they, they say that regardless of whether they can remember or not, that the effect of having somebody caring around them actually has an emotionally good effect on them, whether they're fully conscious of it or not. And so you just try to express lots of goodwill. And you know, if you can during a, a, a lucid moment, say, okay, think, think thoughts of goodwill for everybody around you. And that might have plant seeds. I hope so, yeah. I mean, my father had um, Parkinson's dementia. He had his lucid moments every now and then. It was like something coming up for a surface and then disappearing. Yeah. And so when they come up, that's when you try to feed them something good. Oh, no. Well, the resentment there would be lack of empathetic joy. I mean, there's a difference between liking and uh, disliking and resenting. Dislike is basically saying, this person's behavior is really unlikable. But why should I resent it? It's just a matter of fact. There are people out there in the world who are likable, and a lot of people in the world who are unlikable. Then the question is, can you stop this person from doing the harm, or can you not stop the person from doing harm? And if you can't stop the person, that's when you have to have equanimity. If you think there's or maybe some way I can prevent the harm, you're going to go ahead and do that. It's because you have goodwill for the people that are potentially harmed. So you know, we're not being passive, it's just a, equanimity is more a, a Mm -hmm. to, to help our 
Right. Right, right, exactly. Because equanimity is there, not just kind of a blanket, I don't care. It's more, if this is areas I realize I cannot make a change here, but there are other areas where I can make a change. If I let myself get upset about the things I can't change, that drains the energy that I could use for the things that I could change. So I've just got to let that go so I can focus on where I can. And the problem is the world does not come up with a map that says, okay, you can change this, but you can't change that. It means you've got to try. Give you, I'll tell you a story. Um, my mother was an author, and all the characters in her novels had very strange names. And so when she came to naming her sons, I had the most normal name. My brother's came, older brother was Galen, my other brother was Giles. And my grandfather did not think much of my mother's names. And so when poor Galen was going to go to school, he told my grandfather, who used to be a boxer, pulled him aside and said, Look, Galen, when you go to school, the kids are going to make fun of your name. So, I'm going to teach you how to box. <laughs> and so he taught Galen a few punches and other things, and they started sparring a bit. And then, at, and then at grandma, Grandpa got more and more aggressive, and as he was getting more aggressive, Galen just kind of lost it and just started flailing, and Grandpa put his, head in his hand on his head and said, Look, stop. If you, if you lose your anger while you're fighting, you're not going to be able to win. You've got to drop your anger, he says, grow cold, then punch the guy. You know? In other words, you've got to be really objective. Okay, what really would be the best thing to do? Because in the moment of anger, you know, your, your sense of shame goes out, your sense of compunction goes out, you can think of anything and you'll do it. We said, look, I can't allow that to happen. I've got to be in a position where I can think clearly. So you've got to say, okay, grow cold, and then give the knockout. Dharma lesson from my grandpa. Because <laughs> again, this is why it's good to be able to live around people who practice the Dharma, like with John Fuang. You can be extremely effective. But you never saw him lose his anger. But there are times when he could just get the word right in. Well, there was another time with the John Sawat. There was this monk in Los Angeles who had had this series of accusations against him. You know, women who had said he'd been sleeping with them. And it's a long, long, long story. But he was able to sort of, sort of wiggle, wiggle his way through the accusations. And we started the monastery of Wat Metta, and he brought a group of lay people up to see what John, to make, make his, basically give a gift. It was kind of a friendly gesture. And also thinking that in front of the lay people, John Sawat would not say anything about his, this case against him. 
And a John Sawat, whose demeanor was extremely mild, looked at him and said, you know, when are you going to get this case against you cleared up? And the monk said, well, I've been trying. And John Sawat said, if you really been trying, it would have been cleared up a long time ago. In my eyes, you're not a monk. So there are times when just being calm, but you can still get the message across. It's much more effective than when you're yelling. It's about what are you feeding on? Do you need, still need to feed? Okay, well, the Buddha is basically, Buddha is basically saying that you, we suffer because of the way we feed, not only physically but also emotionally. And the, re the reason we keep suffering and feeding is because we think we're going to get something out of it, but then we get the suffering. And he's saying, if you can finally see that it's not worth the feeding, that you'd be better off not to feed. It's like you know, developing a dispassion for hostess Twinkies, or you know, if you loved them when you were a kid, and now you realize it's all garbage. You know? And so basically that's the Buddha's attitude towards the way we feed. So he says, focus on that. Where are you taking your emotional food? To what extent is this placing you in a position of weakness? To what extent is this making you suffer? Can you find alternative, first alternative ways of feeding? I mean, you do develop a passion for the path. You're not going to get into John unless you really like your object. You know? So you work on that. And then you start looking at the other things that you used to feed on. You say, yeah, I don't really need that anymore. I'm better off without it. And then finally he's got you cornered. He says, look, I'm still feeding off this John and there's still a little stress here. What happened if I decided not, you know, is there something better than this? And that's when the mind opens up. And then you look back and you say, I'm so glad I'm here. So that's the process. And then once you know, people have gained awakening, it's not like just they sit around and they don't care. If there's something you know, where they can make a change, they do. But they don't, they don't have to feed emotionally off of the fact that I am an important person who can make change in the world. The thing is, John Swat said, when you find the ultimate happiness, you don't care if there's a self or not. The happiness is there, and it doesn't depend on any conditions. Because for us, our, our sense of self and our sense of not-self are also strategies for finding happiness. 
if I didn't have a sense of that I have some capabilities and I can actually make something happen, how am I going to find happiness in the world? And also that I'm going to be the person who's going to benefit from that. You have the self as the consumer and the self as the producer. And all the happiness in the world requires a producer and a consumer. And the Buddha is saying there is a kind of happiness that doesn't require either a producer or a consumer. And Bhanavas said, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> and he says, don't worry about it. Yeah. And well, be happy the right way and there's nothing to worry about. When you see people who are, who are either doing skillful things or re enjoying the results of skillful things, say, so, okay, I'm happy for them. And may the Yeah. And you might ask yourself, is there anybody out there whose happiness I am jealous of? Why am I jealous of their happiness? Does their happiness make anything me less, make me less? And if I ever, and the Buddha says at one point, he says, if you see anybody who's got all the wealth and power and whatever you can imagine, you've been there at some point. In the same way when you see somebody who's really poor and sick and miserable, you've been there too. And the second reflection is really good for when you're going to be helping somebody so that you treat them with respect. You realize that they, it's not that I'm a better person than they are, it's just that their bad karma, bad karma, their bad karma is showing itself right now. Who knows what I have? So maybe I should treat them with respect as I'm helping them. At the same time, you see somebody who's, who's happy, who has greater wealth, status, power, whatever than you have. I'm not jealous of them. Maybe someday I'm going to be there. I've been there before, maybe back there again. Do I want other people to be jealous of me? And if you say yes, and I say, let's think about this. <laughs> about their happiness that makes me less. Why am I resentful of it? Yeah. It's the same way when you're doing goodwill meditation. One of the ways of doing it is to ask yourself, is there anybody out there who I'd like to see suffer? And you can probably come up with a list. And then you've got to go down the list and say, what, what, what advantage would there be in the world? What advantage would there be for me if that person really were suffering? And do you think it would change that person's ways? And then you can kind of go down the list and check them off, check them off. And then finally, as, as you overcome that first couple barriers, then it gets easier to say, gee, I'm not going to be benefiting from anybody's suffering. Why would I want to wish suffering on, on anyone? So it's not just a pink cloud you're setting out. You're asking, asking yourself, you know, who out there Am I resentful of who out there is already suffering? I want to see them continue suffering. Who out there do I have ill will for that are, seems to be happy and want to make them suffer? Let's work through those attitudes. Okay.
Well, if you, if you feel that there's something you can actually do to help that person, you're happy to do it. Some, some people are receptive and other people are not. It's like, you know, when you broadcast, some radios are turned on and other radios are turned off. I mean, some people actually sense when some goodwill has been sent to them, and they find it encouraging. Change their lives, you mean? I mean, they're going to have to do something. They have to be receptive. They have to have some sort of response. Not, you can't just magically change their lives for them. But some people, you know, the fact that, gee, there's somebody out there who has goodwill for me, that gives me some encouragement. That's plenty right there. Not enough, huh? <laughs> What's the alternative? No, no. Gosh, if you know, if, like the Buddha would have, you know, if he could have made everything fine for us, he would have. We have, we live by our actions. So you can't, unless unless you can influence somebody else to act in a good way, that's how you benefit the other person. Now, sometimes they, you know, they feel more encouraged by the fact that there's somebody out there sent me goodwill. I knew a case in Thailand one time, and there was one of my teacher's students was going through a bad time in her life. So one night after my meditation, I spread some extra, you know, extra dose of goodwill in her direction. Next morning, she came to the monastery. And said, Were you sending goodwill to me last night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she seemed encouraged. Yes. then you can't expect the fact, simple fact that you're spreading goodwill means that they're going to be happier or, or start acting in better ways. It's not, it's not automatic. Oh my gosh, if we could do that, I would be doing it for everybody. You know? There has to be some receptivity on the other person's part. I mean, the Buddha says there is one level of being where they know that merit has been dedicated to them automatically, and that's the hungry ghosts. 
But even then, the hunger ghost has to accept and rejoice in the merit that's dedicated to them for them to benefit. My teacher had a student who, in the course of her meditation, started seeing a lot of hungry ghosts around. And she didn't like this. She asked, "Can I, some way I can turn this off? Because it was kind of depressing seeing these miserable spirits hiding under stairways or in doorways and you know, you know, not properly clothed, not properly fed. He said, look, you can do some good for them. Dedicate the merit of your meditation. And so she started doing that. But he said, before, before you do that, ask them, what did you do to become born like this? And I think he did that because this was a woman who liked to practice magic. And she thought, you know, when you practice magic, you're, you're sort of outside of the law of karma. And this was teaching, okay, there is, there is karma. And so she would ask them, what did you do? And they would say, oh, I did X, 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 X. And she said, well, let's see if we can help you. And in a lot of cases, she said, they, didn't, they weren't hungry ghosts anymore. They kind of changed their level of being and left. But there were some cases where they, they didn't. So she went and asked him, he said, look, they still have their karma. So if, they, you know, if they're not ready to accept it, you, you, you can't really help them. At least the help is not immediate. Now, one of my favorite cases, we're getting close to mealtime, but um, I, can, I can make the story short. There was a monk in Thailand who lived at the monastery in Bangkok where John Fuan was asked to teach. And this monk lived in a dark corner off in the, in the far corner of the monastery by himself in this two-story building. And it turned out he was engaged in illicit Buddha image trade. In other words, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., people would bring in Buddha heads, Buddha hands, Buddha images. No questions asked about, where did you get this? You know, did you cut off the head yourself? Did you cut off the hand yourself? He just would, he had some money in a drawer, and they would take the money, and then he would, he was actually the conduit by which a lot of Thai Buddhist art got out into the international art market. So you go to people's houses, you see a Buddha head, a Buddha hand on the, on the table, maybe it went through him. So anyway, he liked being in that dark corner where there was nobody else around, so he could kind of do his business. And so John Fuang was placed in the second story of the building where he was. And he did not like this because meditation monks might be up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., seeing what's going on. So he did everything he could to get rid of a John Fuang. And if I ever had time, I would tell you some of the stuff. Um, but after, all, after a couple of years, a John Fuang finally was given the, the monastery in Ryong where I met him, so he went out to stay there. Soon after he left, this monk was found stabbed in his, in his room. Someone had brought in something and had just taken the money out of the drawer and gone. So a couple years after that, John Fung was invited back to teach at the monastery. Same building, he was up second, second story. And a number of people were coming to practice with him, and quite a few of them would have these visions. They'd think, there's this bloody monk wandering around the building. And so John Fung would say, well, dedicate the merit of your meditation to them. Sit there for a minute. He won't take it. <laughs> so, some grudges die hard. <laughs> so you hope that you can help, but you can't, you can't guarantee it. Gosh, at this rate we'll never get done. Okay, after this meditation of the, f the four Brahma Viharas, then the Buddha says, develop the meditation of the unattractive. Now, those are talking primarily about the unattractiveness of the body. 
the standard one is when you start thinking about if you took all the different parts of your body out and you put them on the floor and asked them, which of these do you feel attracted to, there wouldn't be much. <laughs> and then you say, well, why is it when they're all put together that I find them attractive? What is, what is it about the perception that changes when they're all put together as opposed to when they're taken apart? And you do this with your own body first because, as the Buddha said, we're attracted to our own bodies first and then we're attracted to the bodies of others. So first you have to see, okay, there's nothing in my body that's attracted. Why would I be attracted to somebody else? And this is, a, of course, for monks this is obviously a good meditation, but it's also a good meditation for lay people. Because there are people out there for whom if you, you know, gave in to your attraction for them, there'd be a lot of trouble one way or another. So it's good to be able to say, no, I don't need to be attracted to that, that person. So you contemplate, well, there's nothing here. Is it the person's liver that I'm attracted to? Is the person's lungs I'm attracted to? The intestines? There's nothing there. It helps you get past sensual desire when it comes up in the meditation. Some people complain that this is a, promoting a negative body image. And we have to make a distinction between negative, healthy body image, a healthy negative body image, unhealthy negative, healthy positive, unhealthy positive body image. Unhealthy negative body image is my body is ugly, all these other people have beautiful bodies. Healthy negative is we're all in the same boat. There's nobody out there that I should be jealous of their, their, their good looks. Because it's all made up of the same stuff. It's like living in a house made out of frozen meat. It's going <laughs> to... It's all starting to, to start to decay. Healthy positive and unhealthy positive. An unhealthy positive body image is, I'm really good looking, I can get away with stuff. I'm attractive, I'm going to you know, make use of my being attractive. My personal worth is bound up in the fact that, I, that people find me attractive. That's unhealthy positive. Healthy positive is, I've got a body that can do a lot of good. I can be generous, I can be helpful to other people, I can meditate. My body has its uses. That's healthy positive. So we're working on healthy negative and healthy positive. Any questions on that? Unhealthy negative is my body is ugly and ugly. all these other people have beautiful bodies. There's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yes. Well, it's, you're, we're not doing this to hate the body, but it's just to realize that okay, there's nothing here to get worked up about. It's a tool. Yeah. It's to counteract, the, this is to counteract times when you're feeling attracted to somebody's body. You take a second, you say, wait a minute, my own body has the same, same organs that this other person has. 
I know that there's nothing in here that's really worth you know, doing all the stupid things we do under the power of lust. So it's not a main technique? It's not a what? It's not a technique that you should always use. You've, you've got to have the breath as a backup. When it starts getting depressing or you start getting disgusting, you say, wait a minute, this is not the purpose of this meditation. You pull back and you go to the breath. But it's good for counteracting lust when it comes up. Because remember, one of, the pre one of the prerequisites of getting the mind into jhana is that you are not engaged in sensual thinking. So this is one good way of counteracting that. And then you say, okay, okay, I've gotten to the point where I don't really find any joy in, in doing that sensual thinking. Maybe I can find my pleasure now in the meditation, in the concentration. Well, it's, I mean, they say you have to be a non-returner to be totally beyond sensual desire. But you have to learn how to counteract it up, in the, up until then. I must admit, when I was in college, we had a co-ed section. It was, one of the women in the section was uh, the runner-up to Miss America that year. And she had this, she was really good looking, of course, and she had this really good looking boyfriend, and they lived in the same room. And I must admit, I got a lot of satisfaction out hearing them yell at each other. <laughs> I suppose that wasn't the healthiest thing, but. <laughs> but they say two things. One is if, I mean, I, I, I did not find her attractive, because she was one of these people who was always going around looking, everybody thinks I'm attractive, I'm really attractive. And that, that I found really off putting. One. And then two, um, there was a TV interview, a radio interview one time in France. I think it was Alain, Alain Delane, how do you pronounce his name? Delane. Delane. And Catherine Deneuve. And then they were talking about seduction. And he was saying that the easiest people in the world to seduce are beautiful women. It's because they think they're beautiful and they just, you know, they, they really like it when it gets confirmed. The hardest people to seduce are people who don't think they're good-looking. So if you, if you can learn how to see yourself as unattractive, then you are immune to having crazy people trying to seduce you. <laughs> yes? It's a different kind of attraction, yeah. It's, it's, it's not usually the thing that pulls you out of your concentration. If it does, then you say, well, wait a minute, what, what is it that I enjoy about this interaction that has me thinking about it so much I can't get my mind into concentration? The Buddha is not saying that we shouldn't have affection for other people. I mean, he actually has, you know, the, he tells the monks when they're ordained, regard your preceptor as you would your father, and the, pre the preceptors don't regard your, your students as you would your sons. And try to develop that kind of, you know, relationship. So affection is okay. It's the lust we're talking about. 
And of course, as everyone knows, it's not, it's lust is not just around the body, it's also about the stories we tell about how you know, the seduction happens and what, you know, how that goes on. And you've got to see that as one way of getting through that, and say, well, you're, you're, you know, you're just seducing a corpse, who wants that, I know. What fun is there in that? And learn how to you know, see, the, see the narrative as something unattractive. That's the next step. One last question. Okay, one. Well, let's let's have one topic before we hit mindfulness of breathing, and this is to have the perception of inconstancy. It says learning how to see things as inconstant, particularly learning how to see yourself as inconstant. This helps get rid of the conceit that I am. Now it's interesting. This is something he actually taught Ruhula before breath meditation. And again, this is this is to deal with any distractions and other things that may come up in the course of the meditation. But I am this or I am that. He says, wait a minute. Whatever you are, it's very inconstant. Whatever it is that you might identify with, it's in something inconstant. Why do you let this bother your mind when you're trying to get the mind to settle down? I use the word inconstant because for a couple of reasons. One is. You know, we know that Mount Baker is impermanent, but we'll still tr we can still walk on it, right? Whereas if something is in constant, I don't know if I'm going to walk on that. In other words, the idea is that it's unreliable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this one has perception of constancy. Almost perception of unattractive in the previous part. Mm -hmm. Why isn't it just? You're applying the perception to things. In other words, you see, you look for, you look at something. You say, "Okay, what in here is inconstant? What in here is unreliable? Focus on that." Yeah, because you're again, you're trying to perceive which aspect of this particular phenomenon can I focus on so that I find it not interesting or not worth you know, destroying my concentration. Because you can, you can, you can. I say you can perceive the constancy of Mount Baker. It's been there for you know how many years, and that would be a truth as well. You know. It's the same with you know, the perception of stress. So there, as the Buddha said, if the aggregates did not offer pleasure, nobody would fall for them. So you could say, okay, pleasure is part of their truth, just as much as stress. But if you focus on the pleasure, it's going to be bad for your mind. You're trying to focus. You're focusing on their stressful aspect. In the same way, anything else that comes up in the mind, that it would be, there would be an attachment that would pull you out of concentration. You remind yourself, okay, this doesn't last. This is unreliable. This is why I say it's a perception rather than a characteristic. And with that, we close for the morning. Come back at one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.